listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning. morning. I am uh, not a familiar face. My name is Talavo. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I um, didn't reset my iPad, so scrolling. I get to work with our students. Um, and so I, I know a handful of you. Uh, so my wife, Bess, and I uh, just got back Friday from a really awesome trip to California. Uh, we were in San Francisco. We took our 10-year anniversary trip early this year instead of waiting for the fall. Um, and I've been watching Full House ever since because I'm just, <laughs> just it's awesome, okay? Um, so now every time... Uh, I'm on a trip, whether it's this last one went on or whether uh, it's a camp trip with our students, I realize more and more how much I dislike traveling, okay? It's, it's the arriving that I like, okay? And I have this theory that most people, when they say that they love to travel, what they really mean is that they love it when they get to the place they want to be at, okay? We don't like traveling, we like arriving, Right, because uh, traveling involves lines, traveling involves checkpoints and emptying out your water bottle and taking your shoes off and your belt off. Traveling involves delays and traveling involves waiting, right? And, and we can be honest with each other, right? Uh, you and I are horrible at waiting. Right? In fact, a huge part of our everyday lives is working as hard as we can to minimize the amount of time that we have to wait for anything. Okay, so you, I'm sure you can imagine how everyone felt um, at the airport last week when they told us that it would be about a couple hours uh, before we got a rental car, right? And it was in that room that I realized that there are uh, different stages of waiting. Okay, I love to people watch a lot. Um, and so I came up with three different stages of waiting as we had to sit there for two hours waiting for a car uh, to show up. Okay, so stage one of waiting sounds like this. It's, you know, this sort of thing happens all the time. It's going to be fine. It's fine. We're traveling. It happens all the time. Okay, uh, stage one lasts for about three minutes, <laughs> right? Um, and that's when you enter stage two of waiting, which sounds like this. Hey, this sort of thing would never happen if I was in charge, right? Um, this is when you tell yourself and everyone around you uh, as many times as you can that you're a genius and that the solution is pretty simple. If they would just ask me, we wouldn't be in this problem, right? Stage two is the longest stage of waiting and some of us just kind of live there all the time, right? Um, I saw a lot of that last week and then the last stage, stage three, is a doozy, right? It's a tough one. Um, it's the let me talk to your manager stage. I saw a lot of that too, okay? And here's the thing about stage three. The manager is never there. The manager is never there. And so you have to sink back into the second stage of waiting, and then you tell this poor person at the desk, who's just doing the best they can, that you're a genius. And they should have asked you. If you, if you just asked me, I would have solved this whole thing, okay? You and I are no good at waiting, right? And this morning, we're going to see some biblical proof of that, okay? So we have been working our way through the book of Exodus for a while now, and today's passage 
um, might be familiar to some of us, especially if you grew up in church. And even if you didn't, you might have heard reference to a golden calf at some point, right? We're gonna be walking through Exodus chapter 32 where God's people decide to build a calf. So why don't you go ahead and turn there uh, with me and let me say this up front, okay? This chapter, this account is not primarily about the calf. Okay, a few weeks ago at summer camp, we made our way through the book of Jonah and I told our high school students uh, a very similar thing. Right, that the book of Jonah is not about a fish. Because if we only pay attention to the fish, then we'll miss the much bigger lesson that the Lord is trying to draw our attention to, right? So Jonah is not primarily about a fish. It's about the pursuit of God. Okay, and Exodus 32 is not primarily about this calf, right? There's something much bigger that we need to pay attention to. So Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, that these things, uh, what we're gonna look at this morning, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, and then listen to what Stephen says about this in Acts chapter seven. He says, our fathers refused to obey him, that's talking about Moses. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So Exodus 32 is not primarily about the golden calf. Paul says that it's meant to be an example for us. There's a much bigger lesson that we need to pay attention to. So have that in mind as we make our way through the text. I'd love to read uh, the entire chapter for us, okay, before we go any further. Um, it's a little long, but this is probably the most, certainly the most important thing I'm going to say today, okay? This is the Word of God. Exodus 32 says this, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation saying, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next morning and, burnt, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse seven, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up to the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have set aside quickly, turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, 
why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring that they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand tablets that were written on both sides on the front and on the back they were written the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted he said to Moses there is a noise of war in the camp but he said it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat but the sound of singing that I hear and as soon as he came near to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot, You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to to gate throughout the camp, and each kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in that day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So one of um, my bigger takeaways as we've worked our way through the book of Exodus together is that God cares about our worship. God cares about our worship. He cares about who we worship and how we worship. God cares about our worship because he understands that the object of our worship and the direction of our worship will dictate how we live our lives. 
Okay, so much so that he calls Moses to meet with him up on the mountain to give him and his people instructions for life and for worship. And here is Moses' most important lesson. Okay, this is from Exodus 20, uh, when God is giving him the Ten Commandments. I'll start in verse one. It says, and God spoke all these words. Remember, this is straight from the mouth of God. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So God gives Moses the first two commandments. And Clint summed them up pretty perfectly, right? A while ago, it's don't worship false gods and don't worship God falsely. Okay, God cares about who we worship and how we worship. And then when it comes time for them to confirm the covenant, right, to put their yes down, And to give God their final answer, they say, yes, we're in, right? And twice in Exodus 24, they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then again in verse 7, Exodus 24, verse 7, says, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And so God calls Moses back up to the mountain to receive more instructions about the temple and about the tabernacle because God cares about our worship, right? Exodus 24, 18 tells us that Moses entered the cloud and went up to the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And that's where the trouble begins, right? Because apparently that was too long for him to be gone. And the people went straight to stage three, right? Let me talk to your manager, Okay, so verse one tells us that when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now, this is exactly what Paul is telling us to pay attention to, right? Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And here is idolatry summed up perfectly in one sentence, make us gods who will go before us, right? And that's what this chapter is about. It's about our worship. It's about how you and I are prone to false worship. We're prone to idolatry. Here's how one theologian sums up what's going on here. It says this, man must have an object. And when he turns from the true God, he at once craves a false one. Okay, you see, it's not a matter of if we'll worship, but who or what we'll worship, right? And when our worship is directed at anything or anyone else who isn't God, then it's called idolatry, right? And here's kind of the big takeaway that I want us to grab hold of this morning. Idolatry is costly. Idolatry is costly. And I want to walk us through um, how costly it is. But first, we probably need to ask, okay, what is an idol? Right, that word feels really Indiana Jones to most of us, and so it makes it easy to dismiss. Right, like I, the last time I checked, I don't have a golden statue of a calf in my backyard, so I think I'm good. Right, but remember, this is meant to be an example 
for us, right? Do not be idolaters as some of them were. This is not primarily about the golden calf. It's about our worship. It's about the different idols that you and I have in our lives. So here's a couple definitions for us. I wanted to give you um, two kind of broad definitions so you can grab hold of whichever one uh, makes the most sense to you, okay? So here's the first one. An idol is anything which displaces God in my heart. It may be something which is quite harmless in itself, yet if it absorbs me, if it be the first place in my affections and thoughts, it becomes an idol. It may be my business, a loved one, or my service for Christ. Anyone or anything which comes into competition with the Lord's ruling me in a practical way is an idol. All right, here's one more definition for you. Idols are the works to which we run rather than running to God alone. Works that tire us out and do not change the situation in which we find ourselves, but, don't miss this, but often make us feel like we are surviving or in control. Okay, you can see both of these come into play in Exodus 32, right? You can see an idol that is displacing God from the hearts of the people, and you can see an idol that's meant to make them feel like they're surviving or in control of this situation, okay? So they said, hey, make us gods who should go before us. We need something to get us out of this situation, right? We need to give ourselves some sense of control or security here. And so when Aaron is finished, they, 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 re, they rejoice and they say, these are your gods, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is the sense of security and safety and hope and comfort that we were looking for. All right, here's another way you can look at it. As long as we've got this golden calf, we'll be fine. All right, as long as we have this thing, we'll be okay. Everything will be okay as long as we have this, right? Does that sound familiar? Have you ever said or thought anything like that before? These are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is your career that will bring you your sense of identity and purpose. All right, this is your money that will bring you your sense of security and fulfillment. All right, or it might sound like this, as long as I look a certain way, everything will be okay. All right, as long as my family or my kids behave a certain way, then everything will be fine. We'll be okay. Right, as long as I can feel successful or as long as I can hold on to my reputation, everything will be fine. And let me just say, uh, for the sake of transparency, right, that, that I struggle with these same things too, right? Lest you think that just because I wear a name tag that says CBC on it, that I'm somehow immune to sin or immune to idolatry. Okay, you see, because when you... When you preach on idolatry, God in his grace, right, gives you plenty of opportunities uh, to see all of the idols in your own life. Okay, so, so here's mine. So over the past few weeks uh, or so, I have become increasingly aware, painfully aware, that I have a tendency to make an idol out of this kind of well-to-do upper middle class lifestyle. Right? Maybe it's because uh, I've started to buy into this like rat race mentality. Right? I'm 32. Um, it's a myth, by the way, that rat race. Um, but, I, but I'm looking around at all my buddies who are doing really well, and I'm, and I'm feeling really behind. 
right? Maybe it's that, or maybe I've stumbled across too many videos on the internet that say that I would be a millionaire by now had I just invested in cryptos last year, right? And so I found myself thinking, as long as I can live a certain lifestyle, or as long as I can appear that I'm living a certain lifestyle, then everything will be okay, right? Then we'll be fine, right? Is that just me or is that anyone else, right? Um, and, and that is what idolatry sounds like. And it's not a mistake that it sounds really similar to what the Israelites were asking Aaron to do. Hey, make us gods who will go before us. And again, idolatry is costly, all right? So we're gonna take the rest of our time to walk through just how costly it is. Remember, this is meant to be an example for us. And I want to just say that you might feel a little bit of tension as we make our way uh, through this morning because I have intentionally left things uh, a little broad for us, right? And what I mean by that is I don't want to give you an out this morning. I don't want to tell you that something isn't an idol in your life just to make you feel better, right? So what what confusion or tension or awkwardness you might feel might be conviction, okay? And I just want us to do a little bit of work with the Holy Spirit this morning and grow in our discernment of of when something or someone has become an idol in our lives, right? So you might need to do a little bit of work this morning or this week, right? Especially if you you just, it'll make sense. You might feel like, ah, what do you mean, okay? So here's the first thing. Idolatry will cost us. It will cost us our resources. Idolatry will cost us our resources. So look again at verse two to five. It says this. um, So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Okay, so basically Aaron is saying, if we're going to do this right, it's going to cost us. Right? And what it costs them is two things. It costs them their gifts and it costs them their gold. But reverse that. Cost their gold first and their gifts. Okay, so it's very easy to breeze past verse two, but we need to remember where all of this gold came from, right? Or rather, who this gold came from. In Exodus three, at the burning bush, God told Moses that his people were going to plunder the Egyptians. Okay, and then on their way out, in Exodus 12, during the Exodus, it happens. Um, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Okay, so this gold was given to them as a gift from God. And we found out later that God had something in mind for this gold. So as God begins to give Moses instructions for the tabernacle, he says in Exodus 25, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, he, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. 
right? And God goes on to list other things they can contribute, like fine linen or spices, okay? And then he tells Moses what all this is for. This is why I'm asking for this stuff. Verse eight, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So God had given them their gold and wanted them to steward their resources so that they could participate and take an active role in what God was doing in and through them. Okay, so that's the gold. Here's what I mean about gifts. Uh, Verse four says that Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Something else that's easy to overlook is the fact that Aaron went to Scat. Okay, and he is skillfully sculpting this idol. Right? And then he, then he builds an altar. And this took his time and it took his talent. Right? It took his gifts. And just like the gold, God had something in mind for how he's gifted and hardwired his people. So here's another example from back on the mountain. And this one actually has to do with Aaron. So this is from Exodus 28. Uh, God says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for priesthood. So God wanted his people to steward and use their gifts to play a role in what he was doing in and through them. Okay, but idolatry is costly, right? So instead of leveraging their gold and their gifts, their talents and their skills to join in and participate in what God was doing and planning to do, their idolatry cost them the resources. Okay, and if you're being honest, you know that the idols in our lives demand our resources, right? It's never a one-time transaction. Our idols demand that we build an altar and sacrifice more and more of our time and our treasures and our talents, right? So as not to lose the fleeting sense of comfort or security or control that we're hoping they'll provide for us. We have to keep sacrificing our resources so we don't risk losing the sense of, as long as I've got this, we'll be okay. As long as I've got this, I'll be fine. Okay, so a helpful way to identify different idols in your life is to look at where your resources are going, right? It's to follow the money. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And remember what Stephen said in Acts 7 about God's people, that in their hearts, they had turned to Egypt. So the way they use their resources proves that, right? The way that they use their gold and the way they use their gifts and their talents revealed that their hearts had turned away from God and turned towards their idol. Right, so what about you? Right, are there things or activities or even people in your life that are constantly demanding more and more of your resources. And again, I'm not just talking about money, although we know that's a big one, right? I'm also talking about your time or your attention. Like is every spare thought that you have dedicated towards that one thing, as long as I've got this, then I'll be fine. Okay, are you constantly too busy to engage with things that really matter? Right, like serving or engaging in community? Are you too busy to gather with God's people? Right? Idolatry is costly. And one of the things that will cost you and me is our resources. 
All right, here's the next one. Idolatry costs us our distinctiveness. And I know I mumble, and so that's a word, you know, bear with me. Distinctiveness. Okay, so when we started this book, Bill shared four Ps uh, with us, right? Priestly, peculiar, precious, and purchased. Right? That's who God's people are meant to be. God's people are meant to be distinct. You and I are meant to be set apart. And I believe that what sets them apart, what sets us apart the most, is their worship. Okay? It's what God has been trying to let Moses in on. It's what he's been teaching Moses up on the mountain. Right? What sets them apart is the fact that they worship a living God who wants to be with them. Okay, remember what God told Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God cares about our worship, right? And it's our worship that makes us distinct. But idolatry is costly. And the second they make this idol, the second they make the golden calf, their worship ceases to be distinct, right? We don't have a ton of time to deep dive uh, into why they chose a calf, but it should probably make sense by now. Right, I've been saying it all morning, Acts 7, that in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So, of course, they would model their worship after what they'd seen in Egypt, right? Forgetting the fact that the God of the universe proved these Egyptian gods to be counterfeit, counterfeit when he sent the, the plagues, right? And don't forget that one of those plagues involved the livestock and the land, including the cattle, right? But in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, uh, and their idolatry cost them their distinctiveness. Okay, and real quick, not only did they fail to be distinct in their worship, um, their idolatry led them to make some pretty significant compromises too. Right, so let's talk about the end of verse six, uh, where we're told that the people sat down to eat and drink and to play. And then later on, in verse 25, it says that Moses saw that the people had broken loose. Okay, the noise that the people are making is so chaotic that Joshua thinks there's a war going on. Okay, here's a short version of what's going on. And when it says that the people rose up to play, Moses is not describing some game of capture the flag, right? This is debauchery. That's what that word, this is debauchery that's happening. And Paul hints in 1 Corinthians 10 that there is some sexual morality happening. Okay, idolatry is costly, and it costs them their distinctiveness, right? They look like everyone else now. Right? Their worship and their lives aren't any different. Uh, and Moses even says, right, they've broken loose to the derision of their enemies. Now they're being mocked and ridiculed for it too. Right? They're being derided by their enemies. Like, hey, look, look at those hypocrites. Right? And this is where this really matters for you and for me. Without our distinctiveness, what good is our witness really? Right? We are meant to be salt and light, but we can't be if we're worshiping the same gods, the same idols that the rest of the world around us is worshiping, right? Like the God of success at any cost, or the idol of control, or power, or even the self-righteous outrage that seems to be the currency of our day, right? Without our distinctiveness, what good is our witness Really, right? So another way to help uh, us identify the different idols in our lives is to examine where we lack a certain distinctness, right? And that's going to take a lot of humility and courage for some of us, right? And I'm not saying go and be weird, 
right? But I am saying that if you are a Christian, if you claim to be in Christ, then God has called you and me to live distinct lives that would capture the attention of the people around us and point them to the hope that we have in Christ. And we lose our distinctiveness when our worship and our affections aren't reserved for God. So are there any areas in your life where you feel like you lack a certain godly distinctiveness? Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your relationships or the choices that you make at work or at school. Maybe it's in your affections. Right? Do you feel like you love the same things as the rest of the world does? Are you preoccupied um, with things like popularity or power or influence? Right? You might find that there's an idol behind all of that. Right? So idolatry will cost us our resources, our distinctiveness. And here's the third one. The last one, it will cost us our fellowship. Okay, and I mean that in two different ways, fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. Okay, so here's God's response to all this. Uh, Look at verse seven and eight. He says, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. First of all, I think it's important that you and I understand that God is not unaware of what's been going on down and below the mountain, right? And there is never a time when God is blind to what's going on in our own hearts, okay? And God's reaction to the people's idolatry is pretty scathing, right? He says, Moses, your people have corrupted themselves, right? Parents really get this. This is like when I come home and best looks at me and he says, you will not believe what your son did today, right? Um, you know there's been a pretty significant breach uh, when that happens, right? And God says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They had broken their covenant, right? And it happened quickly, like offensively quick is how this happened. Like walk out on the honeymoon quick is how it happened. And here's the reality about idolatry and the idols in our lives. Jesus said this himself, Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What our idolatry communicates to God is that I'm out. I know I said I was in, but I think I'd rather chase this promotion. I, I know I was in, but I think I'd rather be popular or I think I'd rather choose this boy or this girl instead. I know you've been calling me to steward my resources, but I gotta keep up with that family down the street. Or I've got an image to think about. Okay, and so what happens is that in our hearts, we'll be devoted to our idols and we may grow to despise the Lord because of them. Okay, idolatry is costly. But unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. It can also cost us our fellowship with one another. And I'll go through this one quick. Okay, so obviously, there's a little bit of tension between Moses and the people, right? Verse 19 says, his anger burned hot, and he breaks the tablets at the foot of the mountain. And you know we have to talk about verse 20. He destroys this idol. He grounds it up into a powder. He mixes it in water like it's a protein shake. 
And then he makes the people of Israel drink it. Right? And quickly, the point he was trying to communicate is just how worthless this idol really is. Right? Because eventually, that protein shake is going to end up in the toilet. Right? And then there's Aaron's interaction with Moses. He's like, Moses, I know what this looks like, but I didn't have anything to do with it. Sounds like my six-year-old, right? Um, and then verse 24, he says, so I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. And let me just say, this is not Aaron's best effort. Right, this is a, this is a grown man, okay? Uh, but here's kind of the takeaway from this. You and I, will defend and protect our idol by any means necessary. You and I will defend and protect our idols by any means necessary. We'll make excuses for all the resources that we've spent on them, or we'll blame shift, or we'll lie about how much our idolatry makes us look like the rest of the world. Um, And we'll even try to hide from God or hide from one another, right? Idolatry is costly. And you can see that continue to play out as the rest of the account unfolds. Okay, so it costs some of the people, the main instigators of this whole thing, their lives. Right, and then verse 35 says that the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. God is a holy God, and he cannot and does not overlook our sin. Okay, then the chapter ends, and you might be thinking, what? Like, that's it? Is there, is there any hope in this? Is there a solution? How do they, how could we possibly get ourselves out of this sin, right? Well, God in his grace was already laying out the solution. Okay, the plan was always rescue. Okay, so God wasn't caught off guard. God wasn't making things up as he went along. God wasn't changing his mind. The plan was always to rescue And so he sends Moses down the mountain so that he would step in the gap for his people and intercede on their behalf. And Moses has come a long way, right? It's been really fun watching him grow as we've gone through this book together. And verse 14 says that the Lord relented from the disaster. Um, The plan was always rescue. And verse 30 tells us the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Let's not overlook that fact. Idolatry is a great sin to God, okay? Um, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And he goes back up the mountain and comes up with this outrageous solution, right? This exchange. And he says, blot me out of your book instead. Or here's how I'd put it. My life for theirs. But God said no. And here's the biggest reason for that. There's a greater rescue coming for God's people. And the only way to pull off this rescue is for God to send someone greater than Moses. Right? And remember, the plan was always rescue. So God sends Jesus down into the world and he offers this outrageous solution for our sin. My life for theirs. Okay, that's the gospel. Right, Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this came at a great cost to Jesus. Right? Death on a cross. Our rescue 
was costly. But then Ephesians 2 goes on in verse 13 and says that now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, God solved our idolatry problem and our sin problem by giving us something greater to hope in. And his name is Jesus. Okay, let me end here with this gardener. You guys can come up. Uh, Jesus says this in John 10.10. 10, so my favorite verse is in all the Bible. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The idols in our lives can't deliver on the joy and the satisfaction and the contentment that they promise. They will only rob us of these things. Okay, the idols in our lives will only cost us our resources and our distinctiveness and our fellowship. But Jesus goes on and he promises this. I have come that they, that you and that me, that they may have life and have it abundantly. All right, so let's stand together. Uh, Let's respond in worship to the God who at great cost to himself rescued us from our sin and offered us the abundant life and hope and joy that we've been looking for. Okay, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you have told us the truth about our sin. You've told us the truth um, about who we are apart from you, but you have also told us the truth about your rescue. You've told us the truth about what you have done on our behalf. And I pray that you would help me, you would help our church, Lord, my friends in this room, you would cause us uh, to set our hope and our affections on Christ. And we need your help to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.